How's everybody doing tonight? <laughs> we better get started, hadn't we? Now, y'all, y'all tickled me last week. Ten hands went up. You needed the handout. So Rick went out and made ten copies and came back in. And at the end of last week, when I closed, I said, everybody got the handout, right? No, you didn't. How many need them? Thirteen hands went up. <laughs> ten went up to begin with. He went out, made ten, distributed them. And then thirteen people at the end said they still needed them. I'm not sure how that happened. But as Dean reminded us last week, if you will just simply go on the church website and go under audio sermons... And then you call up uh, the title. I mean, they're in order. And in each block you call up, there's a little PDF button underneath. You click on that, and it will be any handout that I have given out will be on that. If you've missed any of them, it's on the website. So I appreciate uh, Dean reminding us of that last week. I do have some copies to give out tonight. And I tell you what, I think we're going to hold off until the end of the video because I want you to watch the video. Uh, tonight, uh, again, what's, I'd, I'd rather play some of Gruden's, but the lectures are hour long. This is a good format, 23 minutes. But after this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to key off of this tonight, but I have a lot of stuff to go over with you uh, this evening. So this will just kind of scratch on the surface a little bit of what I want to go over with you this evening. Okay? Let's, uh, let's begin in prayer. Jeff, would you open us in prayer, please, sir? Our Lord and our God, we just come before you. We just thank you for this beautiful day that you created. Bless us with. We just thank you for your active and living word. Amen. Tonight we're going to start going over the doctrine of God. We've talked about revelation, uh, general revelation, special revelation. Tonight starts theology proper, which is the doctrine of God. Because theology literally is two words put together, uh, theos, logia, utterances about God. And so the doctrine of God is sort of known as theology proper, okay? And that's what we'll start tonight. So uh, let's listen to this 23-minute video on knowing God, the, uh, the knowledge of God. And then I do have about four or five pages uh, to give to you tonight. So Jonathan, if you'll go ahead and start this. When Ligonier Ministries began many, many years ago, we were visited by a man whose job was to be a consultant to various uh, business and Christian ministries, and he was helping us to define our purpose. And he said to me, he said, R.C., what is the single most important thing that uh, this ministry is designed to do? And I said, that's easy. He said, what? 
I said, to help people find out who God is. And I was quick to add to it, not that God is, because as we have already seen in our study of general revelation, God has plainly manifested His existence to every creature on this planet, and everybody, whether they acknowledge it or not, knows that God exists. But we need to come to a deeper understanding of who He is. What is His character? What is His nature? Because there's nothing in theology that defines everything else as comprehensively as our understanding of God. In fact, I will go so far as to say, as as we understand the character of God, so we will understand every other doctrine in our thinking. They're that closely related. Now, in the history of academic systematic theology, it's customary that the first thing that you study or treat in theology proper or about the doctrine of God is the doctrine of what is called the incomprehensibility of God. Now, that almost seems at the outset that you begin your study of God with a disclaimer saying, well, we're going to start studying something we don't know anything about. And not only do we not know anything about it, but we can't know anything about it. Because when we use the term incomprehensible uh, in our customary forms of speech, what we mean is unintelligible, ununderstandable. Just can't comprehend it. It's inconceivable. And so why even go any further in the study of theology if at the very beginning you say that the doctrine of God is such that God himself is incomprehensible? Well, here's one of those cases where a theological term is used in a more narrow and distinct and precise way than it is commonly used in everyday speech. What incomprehensible means with respect to God is not that we can't know anything about him, but that our knowledge of God will always be limited. That we can have an apprehensive knowledge of God, a meaningful knowledge of God, but we can never, even in heaven, have a knowledge of God that totally, exhaustively comprehends all that He is. In this sense, we're talking about being comprehensive in terms of being total or complete in our understanding. And so at the beginning, we say that God is incomprehensible in the sense that none of us has or ever will have an exhaustive grasp of God. Now, one of the reasons for that is was articulated... Uh, by John Calvin in a famous uh, Latin phrase that he gave to the church and was used in two different arenas of theology. And it is the phrase, finitum non capax infinitum. Now, even this Latin phrase, to confuse the waters a little bit more, can be interpreted two distinct ways. It says, 
the finite cannot something the infinite. And the reason that it can be translated in two different ways is that this word kapox can be translated in two different ways. And those two different ways are this. One, the infinite cannot contain, or the finite cannot contain the infinite. That's simple, isn't it? If I had a glass that was an eight-ounce glass, that glass could not possibly contain a million gallons of water or an infinite amount of water because it only has a finite volume to it. And so the finite cannot contain the infinite. But another meaning of the word copex is the word grasp. And that is, again, to grasp in its completeness. So, again, my mind is finite. And my finite mind does not have the ability or the capacity to grasp all that God is. His ways are not our ways. You know, who can ascend into the heavens and bring God down and so on? His thoughts are not our thoughts. He surpasses our ability to comprehend Him in His fullness. Now, if that is the case and that the finite cannot grasp the infinite, how can we, as human beings who are finite, learn anything about God or have any significant or meaningful knowledge of who God is? Again, I can refer to Calvin who says that part of the graciousness and the mercy of God is that God condescends and He, as it were, lisps for our benefit by addressing us on our terms and in our own language forms. Just like a parent may coo when they talk to an infant. We call it baby talk. But something is communicated that is meaningful and intelligible. And so the first thing we understand about our knowledge of God and about the language that the Bible uses about God is that that language is what is called anthropomorphic language. Now, don't let this big, long word scare you because it includes within it words that you're very familiar with. You've heard of the term anthropology, which is the science or the study of human beings. And anthropology is called anthropology because it comes from the word anthropos, which is the Greek word for man or mankind or human. And morphology is the study of forms and of shapes. In fact, each of us has a distinctive physical form. There are mesomorphs and endomorphs and stuff like that. And we understand that there are, there, there's a subdivision of, of, uh, of science that is called morphology. So anthropomorphic simply means in 
human form. Now, we see this very simply when God speaks to us in Scripture, and He says that the, uh, the earth is His throne, I mean, the heavens are His throne, and the earth is His footstool. And we visualize or imagine in our minds this massive deity who is seated in heaven and stretching out His feet on the earth, which is used as His footstool or as His ottoman. But none of us, I hope, really thinks that that's how God is. God is often described with the use of physical descriptions. There are mentions of His eyes, of His head, of His strong right arm, of His feet, and of His mouth, and so on. And yet, at the same time, the Scriptures come and tell us that God is not a man, that He is a spirit, and He's not physical. And yet the Bible speaks of God in physical terms. And not only does it use human physical language to describe God, it'll even use physical emotional language. It'll say, uh, God repented of doing something. And then later on, the Scripture will remind us that God is not a man, that He actually repents, but that they will describe God in human terms in certain instances and narratives in the Bible because it's the only way we can speak about God. You know, we say he, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Do we interpret that to mean that God is the great cattle rancher in the sky who comes down and has a shootout every now and then at the OK Corral with the devil? No. What that image communicates to us is that God is powerful, He's wealthy, He's self-sufficient, just like a rancher would be on earth who owned the cattle on a thousand hills. So we use anthropomorphic language. The Bible uses anthropomorphic language or human language to speak about God. And we have to be very careful, as the Bible is, when the Bible will, on the one hand, affirm what it says about God using these forms, and then later on in the more abstract uh, didactic way, warn us that God is not a man. Now, sometimes we think that when we go into abstract technical theological language, we escape uh, anthropomorphic language. And instead of saying that God is the, the, uh, uh, owns the cattle on a thousand hills, I might say that God is omnipotent. And I said, now I have a fancy word here, an abstract term meaning omni, all, potent, powerful. And I think maybe because now I have a more sophisticated abstract technical word, I've now gone above and beyond the realm of the human. No. Still, the only way I can understand the word omni or all is by my reference point as a human being to understand what all means when I look at the people in this room and say all the people here in this room, or my understanding of power, because I don't have the mind of God. I don't conceive of of power in the same way God conceives of power. He has an infinite understanding of power. I have a finite understanding of power. And God, fortunately, does not speak to us in His language. He speaks to us in ours. And because He speaks to us in the only language we can understand, we are able to grasp Him. 
In other words, all biblical language is anthropomorphic, and all language about God is anthropomorphic because the only language we have at our disposal is anthropomorphic language because we are anthropoi. We are human beings. Now, because of these limits imposed by the difference, the gulf between the infinite God and finite human beings, the church has uh, had to be careful in defining different ways in which we describe God. And I will mention a few of those now. One of the most common ways in theology that we speak about God or describe God is by what is called the via negationis. And the via, if you've ever been to Europe or to Italy, you see what the word via means. I said we're talking about ways of speaking. The via dolorosa in Jerusalem is the way of grief or the way of suffering. The via is a road or a way. And the word negationis simply means negation. So the way of negation is one of the main ways we speak about God. Now, what's that? Well, all that is, is that we describe God sometimes by saying what He isn't. And so far, we've said that God is infinite. Now, what does that word mean? It's not finite. <laughs> we, we understand what finitude is, that it's limited, it's bound, and so on. And when we talk about God, we say God's not like us in that respect. We're all finite. But God isn't finite. He's not finite. He's infinite. And one of the other characteristics that we find of all creatures in this world is that they all change from time to time. We grow older, if nothing else. And we are, therefore, mutable, aren't we? Because we undergo changes or uh, we undergo uh, alterations, mutations. When we speak of God, we say what? He's immutable. That means he's not mutable. So do you see at this point what we are saying about God is what he isn't? Now, there's some people, skeptics, who say that's all you can say about God is what he isn't. But biblical theology teaches that in addition to speaking about God by way of negation, there are two other ways that we speak of God. One is what's called the via eminentia, or the way of eminence. And that is where we take known human concepts or references and take them to the nth degree, like we do with the words I've mentioned already, omnipotence, omniscience. If you have some understanding of what science is or what knowledge is, and you know that there's a limit to your knowledge and that you have some knowledge, so you are some omniscient. Uh, <laughs> you are not omniscient. We take the word knowledge or science, in this case, science, and we elevate it to the ultimate degree and apply it to God. That is that he has an eminent knowledge. 
He is omni-knowledgeable. He is omnipresent. You are locally present. You are locally present. I'm locally present. But God is all-present and all-powerful and so on. And so there you, you build up this stepped-up view where you project out to the nth degree concepts that you t- can relate to and you do understand that as part of your common reference point and refer them to God. And the third one is what's called the via affirmatos. I won't bother to write it down. It simply means the way of affirmation where we make specific statements about the character of God, namely that God is one, that God is holy, that God is uh, sovereign, and so on, where we are positively attributing certain characteristics to God and affirming that they are true of Him. Now, another thing that we have to see by way of speaking about God with respect to His incomprehensibility are three other distinctive forms of human speech. Three kinds of language that the church has delineated historically. The first kind is called univocal, or sometimes pronounced univocal. The second is equivocal. And the third is analogical. Now, here's the difference among these terms. Univocal language or univocal language means or refers to the use of a descriptive term that when it's applied to two different beings means exactly the same thing. There is a unity of what is being said. For example, if my understanding of the love of God and I took the term love as I understand it as a human being, and I said that God has love in exactly the same way that I have love, I would be speaking univocally. That is, the meaning of love would mean the same if it applies to you or if it applies to God. Let me use an easier term, the word good. If I say that God is good, do I mean by that exactly the same as what I mean when I refer to a human being as that's a good person? Or do I mean something more when I talk about God's goodness? To illustrate it perhaps in a more crass way, I have some dogs at home, and if somebody says, are they good dogs? I say, yes, they're good dogs. What do I mean by that? I don't mean the same thing when I say that my dog is good that I mean when I say my neighbor is good. When I say that my dog is good, I mean by that he comes when I call him, he's housebroken, and he doesn't bite the mailman on the leg. But if you said to me, well, what about so-and-so over here? And I say, well, this fellow over here is a good man. I don't mean by that that he's housebroken, that he comes when I call him, and he doesn't bite the mailman on the leg. The term good takes on a new connotation when I refer to a human being than when I refer to a dog. So there the meaning of the term changes when it is applied to two different beings. Now univocal would allow for no such changes. 
And the point that we make here is Augustine said that anything that is affirmed of God univocally or that is affirmed of God in any way must be denied in its univocal sense because God is never exactly the same as we are. Equivocal is when the meaning of a term changes radically when used for two different beings. My illustration of that is if you go to a a, uh, dramatic reading at the uh, Civic Arena and maybe uh, H.G. Well, Orson Welles was in town, or Charles Lawton, or Richard Burton, or some great uh, dramatist, and you went to see them read uh, uh, a portion of poetry or something, and you came home and you were disappointed, and somebody said to you, well, how did that go? And you said, well, it was a bald narrative. What would you mean by it's a bald narrative? You certainly wouldn't mean that the narrative didn't have any hair on its head you would mean that something is lacking. There wasn't any pizzazz. There wasn't any passion. And just like something is lacking on the head of a, of a bald person, namely hair, so there was something lacking in the dramatic reading. And so that's a big stretch. It's a metaphorical use of bald here, isn't it? And you're moving very far away from meaning the same thing when you're applying it to two different matters. Now, somewhere in between univocal and equivocal is what we call analogical. And an analogy is called an analogy because it is a kind of representation that is based on proportion, where the meaning changes in direct proportion to the difference of the things being described. That's what I was getting at with the good dog, the good man, the good God, so that there is a step up in the meanings that when we say that God is good, we mean that His goodness is like or similar to our goodness, not identical, but enough alike that we can talk meaningfully with each other. And so the fundamental principle here is even though we don't know God exhaustively and comprehensively, We do have a meaningful way of speaking about God because God has addressed to us in our terms and He has made us in His image so that there's an analogy between ourselves and Him. And that gives us an avenue of communication between God and us. Okay, Uh, some ushers... I made 70 tonight. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 14, Should have plenty. Now, if 60 people raised their hands afterwards, you didn't get one. Uh, Jeff, you want to pass some out too? Again, if you, uh, if you slipped in after the video started, if you'll go on the church website and go under the audio sermon section, uh, there is a PDF file with each sermon audio, and it will have the handouts that I give you at each message, okay? So, uh, okay, okay. 
So anyway, just uh, if, you'll, if you'll go on and look at that and hit that PDF button underneath the uh, handouts I have given you in here, uh, we'll be there. Okay, uh, get your Bibles out tonight. You're going to need those. We're going to be reading lots and lots of verses tonight. Now again, as I've indicated, Theos, Logia is what? Utterances about God. Some of y'all over there, you, you may want to move close. I'm going to use the board tonight instead of the TV. So you may want to move to where you can see the board, okay? So theology, of course, is utterances about God. Now, folks, there will, there will always be an element of mystery regarding God, Right? There'll always be an element of mystery. And yet the scripture says volumes about God and about the fact that we can know him. The late A.W. Tozer once said, What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. And you know, our, our belief in God or our lack thereof will inevitably translate into attitudes and actions in our life, right? J.I. Packer, the classic book he wrote, Knowing God. Y'all here tonight? Okay. Uh, J.I. Packer said, I believe that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. That's a great statement. Now, somebody read Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 for us. And read it loudly so everybody can hear. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Okay? Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts. Okay, what's he saying? If we're going to boast, boast in the fact that you know God. The most meaningful pursuit in life is knowing God. Right? 
the most meaningful pursuit in all of life is knowing God. Uh, A study of God will also reveal who we are. What did Isaiah find out in Isaiah chapter 6? Woe is me. When he saw God high and lifted up and exalted, the next thing he said is, woe is me. I'm undone. He thought he was a dead man. And so a proper study of God will also reveal volumes to us about ourselves. Jesus said in John 17 verse 3 that if you really want to live, don't go looking for life, but go looking for God. Jesus said that's where life is, that's where eternal life is. That they may know you, the only true God, and your son whom you've sent. The knowledge of God will also give us great security in our lives. Look at uh, Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So the knowledge of God will give us tremendous security in our lives. So knowing God is what life is all about. It's the richest thing we'll ever, we'll ever give ourselves to. Uh, it'll unveil who we are. And it'll also give us a great deal of security to our lives. Okay, look at your, look at your sheet now. What's the first thing I've given you? God exists, right? God exists. Scripture assumes that God exists. The first verses in the Bible are stated in just a matter-of-fact way. Genesis doesn't try to give us an apologetic, a defense of of the existence of God. It just proclaims He's there. Scripture also tells us that all persons everywhere know that God exists. All persons everywhere know that God exists. I've pointed out to you the past couple of weeks, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. What's Paul say there? He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. 
And so again, all, he's saying all men everywhere know that God exists. I love what Dr. Derek Thomas says. In, in sort of a little snappy way, he says, God doesn't believe in atheist. God doesn't believe in atheist. That's true, isn't it? Because God knows that he's put the knowledge of himself on the human heart. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Folks, it is sin that causes men to deny God and to suppress the truth of God. Suppressing the truth of God is intentional. It's, it's both intentional and it's also irrational. When you consider the fact that God's made himself known, then to suppress it, it's intentional, it's irrational. Wayne Gruden gives the example of traveling in a car one time. He was taking a trip with some friends. There was a lady in the car, and this lady was telling everybody um, she was an atheist. And they were trying to talk to her about their faith in Christ, and she was denying it. And, oh, she was an atheist. She's an atheist. Well, they hit, hit a patch of ice. And the car went spinning off the road and spinning all around. And all of a sudden, she said, Lord Jesus, save us. Wayne Gruden said they all kind of looked at her like, huh? The Bible also tells us that Satan keeps men from believing. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Now, as we talk about God's existence, God is both transcendent, And imminent. And, and both of those have to be kept in balance. What do, we, what do we mean by God's transcendence? He's over and above his creation. He's separate from, he's over and above. He's exalted above it. Uh, he, he's not a slave to the natural law that he has authored. He's independent of it. He's above it. He can override it at will, though normally he doesn't interfere with it, but he can. He's transcendent above it. But he's also imminent. And by this we mean that his presence and power pervade his entire creation. Uh, he doesn't stand apart from the world being only a mere spectator of the things that he's made. He is present and he is involved. Now look at um, Isaiah 57, 15 because in Isaiah 57, 15... Uh, we're going to see there the truth in that one place that, that God is both 
transcendent and imminent. In Isaiah 57, 15, the Bible says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. You see that? God's high and exalted. And at the same time, he dwells with the humble in heart. Uh, listen to Jeremiah twenty-three twenty-four. Jeremiah twenty-three twenty-four. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? What's that again? Do I not feel heaven and earth? He's imminent. He's present. He's near. And yet, listen to Isaiah 55, talking about God's transcendence. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God's above. He's transcendent. And then also I mentioned a moment ago about God's transcendence from Isaiah chapter 6. Where Isaiah uh, saw that vision of God and God was high and lifted up and exalted in his temple. So again, eminence and transcendence. Now what does eminence imply for us? Eminence means that God is very much involved in the world he's made. And yet his transcendence points out he's, he's greater than anything he's made. And so we don't worship the creation, we worship the creator. Folks, it's very important to keep both the transcendence and the, the eminence of God in balance. Because if we don't, we're going to end up distorting God. If all we have eyes for is the fact that he's transcendent, then, then what's our view of God going to be? That he's distant and aloof. He's distant and aloof, we can't know him. If, if all somebody has is a view of the eminence of God... Then, then they're going to treat him like what? They're buddy-buddy. He's just, he's just your bosom buddy, your pal. And, and, and so we really need to understand both. And, and keep both in that proper tension. Now, Millard Erickson, in his little book on Christian doctrine gives us some implications of eminence and then some implications of transcendence. I want you to just listen to these. Implications of eminence. Uh, he says, number one, 
it's first implied that God is not limited to working directly to accomplish his purposes. He says, while it is obviously a work of God when his people pray and a miraculous healing occurs, it's also God's work when through the application of medical knowledge and skill, a physician is successful in preventing illness or bringing a patient back to health. Medicine is part of God's general revelation, and the work of a doctor is a channel of God's activity. One of the implications of his eminence, the fact that he's involved in his creation. Uh, A second implication he gives, God may use persons and organizations that are not avowedly Christian. In biblical times, God did not limit himself to working through the covenant nation of Israel or through the church. He even used Assyria, a pagan nation, to chasten Israel. He's able to use secular or nominally Christian organizations. Even non-Christians do some genuinely good and commendable things. Again, just showing God's presence through these avenues. A third implication is we should have an appreciation for all God has created. The world is God's and he is present and active within it. A fourth implication, we can learn something about God from his creation. All that is has been brought into being by God and further is actively indwelt by him. We may therefore detect clues about what God is like by observing the behavior of the created universe. For example, a definite pattern of logic seems to apply within the creation. There is an orderliness, a regularity about it. A fifth implication, God's eminence means that there are points at which the gospel can make contact with the unbeliever. If God is to some extent present and active within the whole of the created world, he's present and active within humans who've not made a personal commitment of their lives to him. Thus, there are points at which they will be sensitive to the truth of the gospel message, places where they are in touch with God's working. Evangelism aims to find those points and direct the message of the gospel to them. He also gives some implications to transcendence. Implication one, there's something higher than human beings. There's something that gives us value from above. Second implication, God can never be completely captured in human concepts. This means that all of our doctrinal ideas, helpful and basically correct though they may be, cannot fully exhaust God's nature. He's not limited to our understanding of him. A third implication, our salvation is not our achievement. We are not able to raise ourselves to God's level by fulfilling his standards for us. A fourth implication There'll always be a difference between God and humans. The gap between us is not merely a moral and a spiritual disparity that originated with the fall. It is metaphysical, stemming from creation. Even when redeemed and glorified, we will still be renewed human beings. We will never be God. A fifth implication, 
Reverence is appropriate in our relationship with God. And then sixth, we will look for genuinely transcendent working by God. So just some some very practical implications of both the transcendence and the eminence of God. Now folks, not only does the Bible proclaim God's existence, but it also points out secondly, what? That God is knowable. The outline I've given you tonight, God is knowable. Look at uh, Psalm 145. Psalm 145 and verse 3. He says there, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 5 of 147. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And then back in 139 and verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain it. Now, we've already established that through general revelation, God's existence is known so that men are without excuse. We talked about through nature, through history, and through the inner conscience, man knows that there is a God. And we've seen how in special revelation and general revelation both, that God has revealed himself. Now, when he does so, uh, I like what John Calvin said that, that because, because God's infinite and we're, we're finite, when, when God speaks to us or makes himself known to us, he has to talk to us in baby talk. He has to condescend to us. Well, he, he gives revelation of himself. Not just simply that we might know that he is there, but so that we might actually enter into a relationship with him. Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus said, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and any to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 1.21 that the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Now all of this means that we need the scripture in order to rightly interpret the world around us. We need the scripture to rightly interpret general revelation. Because if we didn't have the scripture, what would we end up doing? We would end up distorting our knowledge of God and of the creation. Because we would, we would be left to our own devices. So God 
not only is God there and he exists, but he has made it to where we can know him. A third thing, God is incomprehensible. Again, this is in your outline. God is incomprehensible. Now, this does not mean that we are unable to know God. We've just said that God has made it to where we can know him. What the incomprehensibility of God means is that we will never fully know God. We will, we will never know him exhaustively. We will never know him exhaustively. In fact, the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God means that we will never know a single thing about God exhaustively. Trick question. When we get to heaven one day, will we know God exhaustively? No. Not even in our glorified state in heaven will we know everything that can be known about God. Because he's still sovereign God. And we're man, even though in our glorified state in God's presence, we will never be able to, com uh, to comprehensively and exhaustively know everything about him. Now, the incomprehensibility of God is based on two things. You can probably guess what those two things are. What are they? The fact that we will never know God exhaustively. It's because, number one, because it's a, it's a three-letter word. Because of our sin. But then secondly, and I've basically just told you the answer. Secondly, because of what? Because of God's greatness. Because of sin and because of God's infinite greatness. We will never know everything there is to know about God. But while that is true... That does not mean that we are not to be growing in our knowledge of God. 2 Peter 3.18 tells us that we are to be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And Paul, as he was writing to the, to the Colossians, and in Colossians chapter 1, as Paul said, he was praying for them. What, what was one of the petitions that he was praying for them about? That they would know God more and more. We'll never know him completely. We'll never know him exhaustively. But that does not mean that we aren't to be growing daily in what we do know of him. In fact, one of the joys of the Christian life should be this lifelong adventure of getting to know God. Now, folks, we can, we can know God truly while affirming that we don't know him exhaustively. Because we have the Bible 
that's God's inerrant, infallible word. What kind of statements does the Bible make about God? It makes true statements. So in that sense, we can know God truly without knowing him exhaustively. A fourth thing I want you to uh, see tonight is the fact that, well, I've already pointed out, and you have it in your notes, God is transcendent and eminent. Uh, fifthly, I want you to see something about the character of God. Now, we cannot say everything that the Bible says about God all at once. We need, some, we need some categories just because of our understanding and the way we need to put things together. We need some way to characterize or to categorize the attributes of God. Okay? Now, Regardless of the fact that this may not capture everything, I think it pretty well says that, that when theologians talk about the attributes of God, they'll, they'll categorize them into incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes, right? Communicable attributes are those attributes that God shares with us. Okay, the Bible says God's loving, but you and I are to be loving too, right? So that, that's, uh, that's what I mean by a communicable attribute. God's merciful, you and I are to be merciful. God's holy, you and I are to be holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 13 and following. God says, be ye holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So communicable attributes, those things that he shares with us. But again, the incommunicable attributes are those things that belong to God alone. Now, what would some of those be? Eternality, right? Psalm 90. What did Moses say in Psalm 90? How did he open Psalm 90? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From eternity past to eternity future, you're God. Now, you and I, as we think about the future, every one of us in here will live somewhere for all of eternity. All of mankind. The Bible talks about two places, heaven or hell. But are we eternal? No. We, we don't possess eternality in, in and of ourselves and we certainly don't possess it from eternity past. 
Because we were created. There's, there was a time each of us in here was conceived. So only God has that characteristic of eternality. Uh, another, another attribute of God... God is unchangeable. God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, and his purposes. Uh, Get your Bibles again and find Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Twenty-five to twenty-seven. The psalmist says, "Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same." And your years have no end. And then over in Malachi, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. Malachi verse three, uh, chapter 3 and verse 6. What the Lord say? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, old children of Jacob, are not consumed. And then over in James 1, James 1, 17, the scripture says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now folks, the, the unchangeable nature of God says volumes to man in his worship of God, right? Why does it say volumes? Because we serve a God who is... The fact that he's unchanging means that he's not fickle. He's not some moving target that we can never find. And... With him being unchanging, he's not going to be one way one day with us and another way another day with us. He's constant in his character. He's dependable. He's not some moving target that's playing hide and seek with us and, and even when we pin him down, we can't quite pin him down. We can't really know what he's like because, you know what, he might be totally different tomorrow. No, he's unchanging. Now, doesn't it seem as though God changes his mind at times? For instance, look at how when Nineveh repented, God said that he was going to repent of what he was going to do to them. So how do we understand that? Because it would appear on the surface that God changed, right? So how do we explain something like that? Well, 
we have to understand that God in his eternal decrees states that if man does this, then God's going here, to, here's, here's what God's going to do. But then God, God lays down in his eternal degree, decrees, you do this, and then here's, here's what I do. But this, and then here's what I do. So, so if, you can, if you can trace back behind what the Ninevites did, there was God who from eternity past already said, I will do this or I will do this. When the Ninevites changed, then God said, okay, I'll do this. But that's what God had decreed from the very beginning that he would do. You understand what I'm saying? God says, you know, you you, you don't repent. or, Or if you're not in Christ, for instance, you're going to go to hell. The Bible says Christ's been crucified from the foundation of the world and those in Christ will be saved. So a man comes to faith in Christ, is he going to go to hell? No. Has, has God changed? No. The man has repented and come to faith in Christ. And so God's going to give him the salvation that God's all, always promised that he would give. You see what I'm saying? Have have I made it clear that even from God's eternal decrees, God God has said, I'll do this if this is the case. If this this other is the case, then this is what I'll do. So when when we change and do an about face and come to God, instead of getting his wrath, we get his mercy. It's not that God changed. God's done what he always said he would do. Another characteristic or an attribute of God would be his... impassibility what does the impassibility of God refer to that God is without passion now hang on a minute I'm going to explain this one okay that God is without passion and what that means is he's not subject to suffering or pain, or involuntary passions. In the words of the Westminster Confession, for instance, says, it says, God is without body, parts, or passions. He is immutable. Now, the doctrine of the passibility of God or the impassibility of God has to do with the theology of suffering. Does God suffer? Does God feel emotional pain? Does God express these emotions like mere humans do? No. He doesn't have mood swings. 
All of God's emotions are rooted in his holy nature and are always expressed sinlessly. They flow from his perfection and the way he has always perfectly ordained them. For instance, the Lord's anger is rooted in his divine justice. His justice is righteous, it's pure, it's holy. And so his anger is perfectly righteous and predictable. It's never capricious. In God's anger, he never sins. The impassibility of God does not mean that God is cold. That he's cold or uncaring. It simply means that God doesn't have passions like man. In other words, he doesn't pitch a tantrum, for for instance. Now, the impassibility of God actually goes necessarily with his aseity. And I'll talk about God's aseity in a minute. Just just hang on. But the way it, it dovetails in with God's aseity, because God is independent, man's actions do not put God into a tailspin. Man's actions do not put God into a tailspin. So, hang on. I'll talk about aseity in a moment, okay? Uh, another, Another attribute of God, His omnipresence. His omnipresence. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. This does not mean that part of God is in one place and part of him is in another. Wayne Gruden says it seems more appropriate to say that God is present with his whole being in every part of space. God is present with his whole being in every part of space. God's omniscience. I'm, I'm hurrying. I can, we can come back and deal with more of these later, okay? I just want to give an overview of these. God's omniscience. God knows everything. In one simple and eternal act, he fully knows himself and all things actual and possible. God never has to learn. God never has to sit at the feet of a teacher and be taught. God knows all things. He knows all things instantly and perfectly. God's omnipotence is what? He's all-powerful. Okay, God's independence. Along with independence, another word for it is the word I mentioned a moment ago. His aseity. God's aseity. It refers to his independence or his self-existence. 
It's from a Latin term that simply means from himself. And, and what it means is God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. In, in Acts 17 verses 24 and 25. Verses 24 and 25. Paul is, is preaching there at, at, at uh, Mars Hill. And he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God's aseity says to us that God did not need us because he was lonely. How many times have you heard somebody say the reason God created man was because he needed somebody to fellowship with? No, he didn't. God had perfect communion. God, God had perfect fellowship within the Trinity. God didn't create us because he needed friends or he needed somebody. He was lonely. No, he's self-existent. He's independent. The aseity of God. And then also... Simplicity, or theologians now prefer to use the word unity because of the, the, the bad connotations today of simplicity. Simplicity or simple in this context means that God is not not composed of parts. What, what this means is God is not divided into parts. We, we might see different attributes of God emphasized at one point in the Bible over another attribute. True, it, it's that we would see that. But what the simplicity means is that when we think about God, we really need to think about all of his attributes. Instead of dividing him up like a little piece of pie or something. Let me tell you how this applies today. People today want to talk about the, the man out in the world when he talks about God he only wants to think because he doesn't want to deal with judgment or hell or anything like that what's he want to think about when he thinks of God God's love well you can't think about God's love without also thinking about his holiness God's holy He's righteous. And so you have to keep the attributes in balance with one another. You need to see the whole. Because if you just pull out one attribute of God and you focus only on that one thing, you know what you're going to do? You're going to have a distorted picture of God. 
Oh, God's loving. He'd never judge anybody. Yes, he will. I'm sorry, what? Never send anybody to hell. He's all loving. Don't y'all, don't you Christians know he's all loving? Well, he's also just and he's holy. So again, the simplicity of God means that we just need, we need to look at all of the attributes of God that the Bible tells us about and, and, and we need to see the whole picture of God and not go dividing God up into little parts based on whatever attribute of God might be our favorite one to think about. Oh, sure. Because a sovereign God, he, he possesses them all perfectly. Well, I'm seeing people come into the lobby tonight. I'm nowhere near done tonight. But anyway, uh, probably tried to cover too much tonight anyway. But... Uh, See, we've not even gotten yet to the communicable attributes of God. The, these would be things, the incommunicable, things that belong to God and God alone. Okay? Uh, as, as one writer has said, though, let me, let me say this about God's incommunicable attributes and is communicable. It might be better as we think about incommunicable attributes, it might be better to think about, uh, to call them attributes that are less shared. And communicable attributes being attributes that are more shared. Because um, omnipotence is, is an incommunicable attribute that belongs to God and God alone. But is man powerful? Does man ha- is, or is man to have dominion? Yes. So man is powerful. So God, God shares some of, some of that aspect being made in the image of God. We have power. We have dominion. We're not omnipotent. But, but you see what I'm saying is, is, is the incommunicable are things that are less shared. Things that belong more purely to God. Whereas the communicable are things that are more attributes of God that are more shared. So some prefer to think, think in terms of the attributes in, in those categories. Rather than communicable and incommunicable, it'd be more shared and less shared. I still like the incommunicable and communicable way way of of talking well uh, we we haven't got to communicable yet we've not even finished the incommunicable and we've not even gotten to the names of God yet that describe what he's like and then also how as he pointed out on the video tonight the anthropomorphisms how the human language in the bible that's we know that God is spirit and yet at the same time, in human language, so we'll understand, the Bible will talk about God's hands, God's feet, God's face. But yet Jesus said to the woman, 
in, in, in Samaria in John chapter 4, God's spirit. But yet the Bible uses anthropomorphisms to communicate to us what God is like because, again, that's language that you and I can understand. When it talks about the face of God being turned towards somebody, his favor on them, or or the hands of God being mighty to save. Uh, Does God have hands like ours? No, but we understand that kind of language. So anyway, there's a lot that we need to uh, go over related to all this. Okay. Anything else in closing tonight? I've gone 11 minutes past my time. Yes. So when you see a church that has preaching or teaching, mm-hmm. yeah. get off on their doctrine. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, churches can get off target and can distort truth. If, if all a preacher ever preaches is the love of God, or if all he ever preaches is the judgment of God, the the best thing to protect against that is expository preaching preaching passage by passage through books of the Bible because then you deal with all of the biblical revelation yeah sure right yep yep okay let's Go home. David Fink, would you dismiss us in prayer, please?